right. Well, good morning, church. My name is Josh Broccolo. I am the tech director here on staff. Uh, hey, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm usually not on this side of the cameras, so that's fun. Um, we'll, we'll see if it ends up being fun or not, but anyways. Um, so we're continuing on in our series, We Are the Movement. We're looking at Luke chapter 1. Um, if it is your first time here at Austin Oaks, or if you're tuning in with us the first time, uh, just welcome. Thanks for coming here. Austin Oaks Church, we are simply about Jesus, and everything that we do is so that you can meet, know, and follow him. Um, so being the tech director, you know, working with tech and working at a church, um, it makes for some interesting, interesting situations because when you meet people, you know, one of the first things that you talk about is, what do you do for a living? And uh, when I say that I work at a church, generally the first thing that comes to mind is not like pushing faders and turning knobs and setting lights and things like that. Um, but it is certainly a blessing for me to uh, recognize, to be able to work at a church and to recognize that, um, you know, even though sometimes it feels like some of the most urgent things that I do working here are running cables and setting up sound systems and uploading videos to the website and things like that. Um, but as I'm a part of the church, it, it, like I said, it really is a blessing to know that those things that seem very mundane actually help to support the ministry of the church. And I'm definitely involved in other ministry work as well. But even those, those small things um, help to, yeah, support the church in its mission and what God is doing in and through AOC. And I think that you see that as well if you're serving here at the church with the gifts that God has given you, that um, even the smallest things help what our church is doing. And, you know, sometimes you get some perspective and we're just a single church in Austin, which is almost a million people, and that's not even counting the suburbs. Um, but Austin Oaks is a part of the larger church here in Austin. And the larger church in Texas, in the United States, in the world. We get to be a part of what God is doing in the world right now through what seems like small things, you know, little conversations that you have with people. When you talk about what God's doing in your life or how good he is, even just inviting people for coffee just to talk, those small things actually have a value that transcends right here and now, but have eternal impact. And that's part of why this uh, series is called We Are the Movement, because we get to do, uh, we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world for such a time as this. And as we're going to take a look into the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think we're going to see that here as well. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump in to Luke chapter 1. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, Brandon did talk about the beginning of Zechariah's story and compared it with Mary, and we got to see a lot of cool stuff there. I'm going to go ahead and retread some ground just because I think it helps to give impact to what comes later as we see um, Zechariah's story. And stepping back, just taking a look at the book of Luke, as again, Brandon has, has shown us. Luke was written by a man named Luke, a doctor, and it was written to Theophilus, who was a Roman citizen. And Luke is basically just explaining what this whole Christianity thing is that's taking uh, the Roman Empire by storm. So as we're reading, we have to remember that, okay, this is Luke's 
explanation of some of the things that have gone on. And that helps to give us a little bit of context for some of the things that he says about Zechariah. So um, let's go ahead and jump in, starting at verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So here, Luke is setting the scene, right? This is just an explanation of who Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are. And the first thing that he says is that Zechariah is a priest, right? He says that uh, Elizabeth is a, the da- a daughter of the line of Aaron, which were also priests. So we have these two characters uh, from the lineage of the priesthood, basically serving God in the temple. What else do we learn about these characters? Well, uh, it says that they were both righteous before God. And they walked blamelessly before him. And that's really interesting if you know the story of Jesus um, in his day, which is right after this passage. Um, He got into a lot of trouble with the priests, right? Usually the priests were the ones that he was arguing with because they were holding so tightly to the letter of God's law without recognizing how God loves them. And there's a relationship that you have with God. It's not just about these things that we do. Um, It's not... You know, even some of the priests, Jesus called them out because they were looking for fame in the way that they walked. But Zechariah is not like that, right? He's righteous and blameless before God. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Both of them together, they're righteous and blameless. Um, Another thing is, if this is written to Theophilus, well, as a Roman citizen, okay, you you see um, there are these two priests. Well, in his day, each nation had their own set of gods, And the way that the gods showed their power was through their people. So I like reading, you know, myths and legends uh, of the Roman pantheon. It's pretty fun. But they're pretty messed up if you've read any of those stories. But regardless, Rome at this time, um, they were basically the entire civilized world, right? They were kicking butt and taking names all across the world. And so in Theophilus's mind, his gods were the strongest gods because they were just destroying all the other gods of all the other nations. So when Luke says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the line of priests, that they were serving God in the temple, this Jewish God, um, it's not exactly a flattering thing because they're spending their lives serving this God who had been conquered by the Roman gods, right? And if you understand from Israel's point of view as well, God had said that they were in exile, that they were being punished during this time, and God hadn't spoken to them for 400 years. So again, we get this picture that, yes, they're righteous, they're blameless, but as priests, it's not exactly a a flattering thing to Luke's audience here. Well, what else do we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth? It says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So I think this is, it's somewhat implicit, but I think it just kind of screams, how, how would Elizabeth have known that she was barren? Well, clearly they were trying to have children, and it wasn't happening for them. In fact, it says that they were both advanced in years. So they had been trying and trying and trying for children, and God didn't give them children. And why would they have wanted children? It's 
might have been a weird question to ask during this time, but, but you think about children as building a lineage, right? A legacy, someone to carry on your name. But these two were from the line of priests. They were righteous. They were blameless. So I have to imagine the reason they wanted children was so that they could bring up a family of priests, right? They could serve God through their family. They wanted something good. They wanted the blessings of God for them and their family so that they could worship the Lord. But God hadn't given it to them. I said that Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So as we continue the story, and it's, again, what we've gone over a couple weeks ago, Zechariah is serving in the temple and an angel shows up. And this is absolutely unprecedented because, again, God hadn't said anything in over 400 years at this point. But now, God sends a messenger to Zechariah. And uh, this hadn't happened with him. It hadn't happened with his friends or his parents or his parents' parents or his grandparents. I mean, 400 years of silence from God. And all of a sudden, now this angel shows up. Um, And what does it say here? Verse 12, it says, Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him. Now this word fear is gonna show up a couple times in the passage, um, but it's a response to seeing the greatness of God. Now this was just an angel, it was a messenger of God, but you see it's kind of not quite a stand-in, but it shows the power of God that he would send one of his messengers to Zechariah and his response was fear. So what the angel says is, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So it doesn't tell us exactly what Zechariah's prayer was, but you can imagine being a priest that he would want God to speak once again, right? He would want uh, Israel to come out of exile, He would want freedom from the oppression of Rome. That could have been his prayer, or it could have been for children, right? To continue this line of priests to serve God. Regardless of which one it was, the angel here says, your prayer has been heard, and both of these things are going to come true, right? God is speaking. God sent a messenger. He's doing something new, and on top of that, you are going to get a son and his name will be John. And what does that son do? Well, the angel um, talks about it. I'm gonna jump to verse 17. It says that he will go before him. Now this is Jesus. This is, or excuse me, this is John. He will go before him. Him is referring to Jesus. So John is going to come as the son of Zechariah before Jesus comes, the Messiah. And he's going to come in spirit, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel is saying, the Messiah is coming. Your savior is on his way and your son, John, that you're going to be blessed with is going to go before the Messiah to prepare the way for your people to be saved, right? I mean, again, this is totally unprecedented and Zechariah is getting his prayers answered. God is speaking directly to him. And how does Zechariah respond? Let's see, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Right, Zechariah responds by assuming that 
God isn't actually going to be able to do what he says that he's going to do. Uh, Zechariah actually falls back on his experience, his years and years and years of asking God and trying for children and never getting anything from it. He's falling back on that experience rather than what God himself is actually speaking to him. Though he was described as righteous, right? It says that he's righteous and he's blameless. Zechariah is not saying, not throwing his hands up in the air and saying, God, you're not who you are, who you said you are. No, he served God all his life. He's a righteous man, but he has to defer to what he's experienced in his life, right? We can't have kids, God. And... um, I can sympathize with Zechariah, can't you? There, there are areas in my life where it just seems like God is not doing what I want him to do. Maybe it's something good, right? Maybe it's a loved one who's far from God right now. And you keep having conversations over and over and it doesn't seem like anything's changing. Like, God, what? can't you do this? I thought you could but my experience is that you're not doing anything. Or maybe it's a sin issue in your life, right? And I, I know that you can break the power of sin in my life, but my experience says otherwise. It seems like I just keep going back to the same old thing. And Zechariah does the same thing. He says, God, okay, you're saying I can have a son, but no, like this has happened before. We've, we've tried and tried and tried, and now it's too late for us. Because of his disbelief in God, um, God takes away Zechariah's ability to speak. He said, you're not going to say things like that to me. I am the God of the universe. And so Zechariah can't speak anymore. He leaves the temple. And uh, let's jump down to verse 24. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So it happens, right? She conceives. And, it's, and she says that it's taking away the reproach from among the people. So why would there be any kind of a reproach that she had? Well, it was because she wasn't able to have children, they wouldn't be able to carry on their line. Um, this would be the end of Zechariah's fa- and Elizabeth's family after they died. They were already advanced in years and they wouldn't continue among the people. So here she's saying that God is taking away my reproach. I will have a lineage. We will continue on. And it's interesting to me too that we get to see a little bit of Zechariah's change Right, because he had just said to God that, no, how is this actually going to happen? I'm, we're, we're too old for this. Um, but I'm not going to go into detail, but you can kind of read between the lines of what happened. It takes Zechariah and Elizabeth to conceive a child, right? So even though he disbelieved God, he still went forward in faith, believing that something would happen. And Elizabeth conceives a son. So that's the first part of the story. That's the part that we've read before. Now we're going to jump down past um, where it talks about Mary to verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Can you imagine this rejoicing? 
right? She calls it a great mercy that God has given her, has blessed her with a son. And again, you think about when this happened, they didn't exactly have the same technology that we have. They didn't have the same hospital system that we have. And this is in a lady advanced in years who's having a child and she makes it out. She's happy, she's healthy, and so is her son. So there's great rejoicing among the relatives and neighbors because of the tender mercy of God that gives her this son. So verse 59 says, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. So this seems a little strange, but culturally, this boy should have carried on their family name, right? Zechariah, the old priest here, should have had Zechariah Jr., who would be the next priest in the temple. But instead, Zechariah and Elizabeth say, no, he's going to be named John. And everyone else is saying, well, John isn't even a family name. How are you going to carry on your family with a different name. But this shows that Zechariah and Elizabeth were guided by their faith in what God had told them. God had said through the angel, your son will be named John. And we see that this nine months, 10 months or so of silence that Zechariah had to go through, this hardship of not being able to speak had changed, changed him profoundly. No longer is he in disbelief when God tells him something, but he wholeheartedly believes what God had said, that my son will be named John. And in this one sweeping act of naming his son, Zechariah is going against the culture, right? He's saying, forget this cultural norm. I don't care. I'm going to serve the Lord. But on top of that, He's saying that my son does not have to carry on my legacy. I don't have to have a lineage in this world. What I've longed for, what Elizabeth and I have wanted all of our lives, all of our marriage, trying for children again and again and again and never receiving it because we wanted to raise up priests. Zechariah is saying, no. God's plan is far greater than what we had planned. So what happens after he names his son John, after he follows, he takes the step of faith in what God had said? It says that immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. When Zechariah's voice was taken away, um, I would think that it would be really easy for him to blame God. Like, I've been serving you my entire life in the temple. You never, never gave me what I wanted. You've never given me kids. And now you're taking away my voice just because it seems like you're not gonna do what you've said. He could have hardened his heart towards the Lord. But no, now we see what that time, what that trial, that hardship of silence 
did in Zechariah's life was it caused him to cling more closely to God. He held on to the promise that he knew that his son was going to be named John. And when he's given his voice back, you can imagine Zechariah never knew he was actually going to be able to speak ever again. When he gets his voice back, the first thing that he does is he blesses God. And what happens? And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Again, there's that word fear. Right, when Zechariah saw the messenger of God, his response was fear. And now when the people see God's miracle in Zechariah being able to speak again, in having this son, these two people advanced in years, they fear as well. They see the power of God is great and they fear what he's doing. And then all who heard these things All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. If Zechariah was given children from the beginning of his life, would it have been talked about? If there was just another Zechariah Jr., another priest that came up in his line, would it have had the same impact? No, I think that God was doing something here. God actually took all of Zechariah and Elizabeth's trials, his silence, and then also their barrenness. He took their pain, their disappointment over all of the years of their life, and he changed it into something that glorified him. It caused people to marvel at the wonder of what God was doing. See, God was using Zechariah's life as a part of his greater plan to bring about the Messiah, the salvation of his people. And it happened in God's timing. I'm sure the years of disappointment that Zechariah and Elizabeth had to endure were not easy. Never having the blessings that they longed for. But see, when they received perspective of what God was doing through their life, that he could actually use some of the worst things in their life to bring about his greater purpose, it says Zechariah blessed the Lord. What God is doing is so much greater than what I wanted than my son to carry on my legacy. What God is doing is worth so much more. So what does Zechariah do next? He pens a song. In verse 67, it says, And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Uh, So again, Zechariah is given his ability to speak back and he praises God in song. And I think this is just a beautiful picture of his deep and affectionate love for God that's overflowing in poetic beauty. And 
Forgive me, I might be a little romantic as a failed musician, but I just think it's so awesome that his thoughts about God are too grand for words. He has to put them into song in order to fully convey what he's feeling in the moment. And what does he say? He says that the Lord God has visited and redeemed his people. How can he say that? How can he say, again, Theophilus reading this, how would he say that uh, you've been redeemed? No, um, you're still under our power. You're still under Roman rule. How have you been redeemed? But Zechariah recognizes that God has visited him, right, through the angel, through his message. And even though Zechariah's initial reaction was disbelief to what God had said, these nine months have changed him. Now he sees the greater purposes of God. And when God says the Messiah is coming, salvation is coming for his people, he says that it's a done deal. God has already redeemed. He said he's going to do it. He's already done it. We might not see it now. We might not experience it here and now in our circumstances. I might still be in the midst of this trial and I cannot speak, but God is working. He has redeemed his people. He has bought them back out of their slavery. And so Zechariah continues God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And this is a bit of a strange metaphor, a horn of salvation, but luckily we're here in Austin, so you might be slightly familiar with what a longhorn is. Uh, so when you look at a longhorn, you see the, the majesty and the power of these horns that are coming off the top of this great beast, right? And so a horn of salvation, what it's getting at is the power and the strength that those convey. You don't want to see those horns pointed towards you. You don't want to see them charging at you. So this horn of salvation is the power, the strength, the might of their God. And he has lifted up a horn of salvation, that this will bring salvation. It will bring the destruction of his enemies. And it's in the house of his servant, David, Right? And David was the greatest king that Israel had ever experienced, but after David, Israel basically crumbled. So where the greatest of men had failed, God is going to show that he is faithful. He will keep his promises and fulfill his covenant. And Zechariah continues, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So Zechariah refers back to the prophets who had said that Israel was going to be punished for their rebellion, who had said that there was going to be this period of silence from God because of what they have done for the sin that they have committed. But the prophets had also said that the exile would end, that there would be one who would grant salvation to them. And so Zechariah is connecting what God is doing in his life with the bigger purposes of God back from the start of Israel and even further back to the creation of the world, to Adam and Eve, when God had blessed them and they decided that they would go against what God said and turn their back and rebel against God. 
and walk in sin. But God has not given up. He continues. He pursues his people. He loves them. And his promise of salvation is coming to fruition through Zechariah, through his son John as the forebear preparing the way for what the Messiah is to do. See, Zechariah again recognizes that his story is about more than just him, more than his family, more than his legacy. It's about what God is doing in the world from the beginning of time, that he's the small piece in God's grand plan that will stretch out into all of eternity. God's story continues today. And that's why we say that we are the movement, right? Because we are a part of what God is doing in the world now, today. So what does this mean for us? Well, Zechariah says that, um, let's see, at the end of verse 73, it says, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here's that word again, fear, that we are to have no fear. We are to serve God without fear. And we see this in Zechariah and Elizabeth as well, that when uh, the culture had said, no, your child's name should be Jeremiah, or excuse me, Zechariah, he should carry on your name. They said, no, we're not afraid. We're not afraid that our line will die with us. We're not afraid that we don't have a family of priests to raise up. Because what God has called us to do, we will fulfill, and God's plan is greater than what we have planned for ourselves. They can serve the Lord without fear. And we can go against the cultural norms today if they butt up against what God says without fear, because what God says is true, right? We are the movement and we are to go forth fearlessly proclaiming what Jesus has done. So continuing in the song, uh, Zechariah then turns to his son, John. So of the dozen or so verses that he's penning here, two of them are for John. You see that his priority is the greatness of what God's doing over and against just his son. But he does bless his son as well. He says in verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Right? And, and here Zechariah is just repeating back to John what the angel had told him that what God has said about you, John, is true. I don't hope these things for you. I'm not wishing that these will happen. No, God has said, This is who you are to be, John, and this is who you will be. And notice he doesn't say, you will be a priest in the temple of God, just like I was. No, he says, you will be a prophet of the Most High. You will proclaim what God is doing in the world. You will proclaim the goodness of the Messiah who is to come, much like we do today, proclaiming God's goodness to a lost and dying world. And what does it say he's going to do? He will prepare the way. He will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins 
So Israel is going to be saved, right? This Messiah is going to bring salvation. And to Theophilus, does that mean, oh, is there going to be an uprising, right? Is that what the salvation of Israel means? But no, he says that salvation is given through the forgiveness of sins. The oppression and the slavery that Israel experienced is not cultural. It's not from Rome. It's not from Babylon. It's not from the surrounding nations. It's from sin. We are slaves to sin. And that is our true enemy. And here... It's saying that God will bring salvation, right? The horn of salvation, the strength of our God will be seen in how he destroys the enemy of sin. He will grant us forgiveness of our sins. And then finally, Zechariah closes out by saying that it's because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think it's really interesting that Zechariah says that this is the tender mercy of God because his wife Elizabeth had used that phrase before. She said that it was God's tender mercy that granted them a son. And here, Zechariah says the same thing, that God's tender mercy is giving to the world his son. That God is willing to sacrifice his own son for the forgiveness of his people. And I think this is just a beautiful picture. That the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death to those who are experiencing pain and disillusion, right? There's a lot that we've gone through, especially in the last few years. It could feel like we're in darkness right now, in the shadow of death, that death is on our doorstep. But praise God for the sunrise is coming from on high who will bring light to those who sit in darkness. And then what's it say? To guide our feet. Now we have light. It will guide our feet in the way of happiness. No. God doesn't promise us happiness. He promises us peace. Peace. What what does that mean? Again, I have to go back to Theophilus. Is he thinking what some sort of peace treaty between the nations? No. The salvation that God offers us is peace with God. Why do we need peace with God? Well, as we've talked about, that our true enemy is sin. We are slaves to sin. And again, I have to go back to God's ultimate plan, right? At the creation of the world, and he created mankind, Adam and Eve, and we decided to rebel against him. We chose sin over a loving God, a loving creator. And because of that, the Bible says, we deserve death. And we are now slaves to sin. See, when it says earlier, when Zechariah said that we can serve our God without fear, why would we have to fear? Because we know how powerful our God is. 
And if we're his enemies, that horn of salvation that will destroy his enemies, those horns are turned towards us. We are the enemies of God. But God offers us peace with him that can only come from this Messiah. That salvation, that sunrise that comes from on high is his son, Jesus, who will willingly take our place. That the power of God that is poured out against his enemies, Jesus takes that on our place. He takes the punishment for our sin And he doesn't save by leading a revolt. He saves through the forgiveness of our sins. And he shows himself powerful because he not only suffered and died, but he resurrected to show that he is over. He is more powerful than both sin and death. And he offers us new life today. And Zechariah was able to see that through what God was doing. Again, I have to go back that Zechariah and Elizabeth led a life full of disappointment. But when they saw that God's timing, although it was difficult for them, when they saw what God was doing, Zechariah stood in awe of the wonder of what God was bringing about because it was about more than his life. It was about more than him and his wife. It was about more than his children, about more than just the priesthood in the temple. It was about you and me here today. We are an extension of what God has been doing from the beginning that extends out into eternity. We are the movement of God because we get to enter into what God is doing now and has been doing since the beginning, saving his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we say that we want you to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And that's what we are able to proclaim together here today. So I would invite you into that. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't follow him, he offers you life this morning. And for those of us who do know him, let's join in. Let's be the movement of God. Let's be a part of what God is doing here and now today. So let's pray. Lord God, you are wonderful. Your plan is so much greater than ours. And God, we confess that we can get disillusioned when things don't go our way, when we don't recognize what you're doing, when we go through our own trials and hardships. But Lord, we hold on to the hope that you are bringing about something so much greater, that you can use our broken lives for your purposes. God, that the small things that we do today can be a part of your eternal work because of what you're doing. So thank you for inviting us into your family that we can proclaim the good news of what you have done through your son to this world. We praise you and we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.